chapter 15, verses 12 to 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. As per usual, it's going to be helpful if uh, you've got that passage that Karen just read for us uh, open in front of you, uh, so you can follow along. Is this, uh, this is working? Sorry, I'm, yes, everyone can hear me? Yes, that's good, that's good. I want to talk this morning uh, in our series on resurrection uh, about hope. And I want to ask you, what is the shape of your hope? What does it look like, the hope that you have? Whatever hope that may be, it may be hope for a life after this, hope of heaven. What makes you think that that hope is real, that it's more than just wishful thinking? Often our hope for life after this is it's tied up with images kind of like this. I just googled heaven on the internet and these are some of the things that came up. They're often, uh, you know, angels and hedgehogs with wings. Um, I don't know why someone was asking a hedgehog's going to be in heaven, but that is there. We often think about that hope in kind of a vague, kind of fuzzy kind of sense. And someone once did a poll recently, I heard about it on the radio, about um, what is the, the, that people think heaven will be like. And the number one word was boring. And you think, really? 
you get an eternity of floating around clouds with hedgehogs with wings. What could be boring about that? Really? Come on, come on. But hope's not just hope for a life after this. Hope is more than that. We have hopes in the the here and the now, and there's a number of movements that are uh, really prominent within our society at the moment that are tied deeply into hope. The social justice movement. The hope that we can set things right, that victims, there are no more victims, that, that everything can be sorted out. And so we see slogans, you know, fight today for a better tomorrow. But you know what? I've been around for long enough as I've clocked over almost 50 years. And I'm a student of history, as many of us will be. And you see that sometimes the best ideals result in the worst actions that what actually has happens in revolutions for justice is you just swap the seats and the oppressor becomes the oppressed and vice versa is there hope could this be real we have a longing for justice and that's a good thing but how can we see that come into being or environmentalism There's a hope that we will have this clean energy powered ecological paradise. But in the extreme forms, they advocate the self-extinction of humanity. How does that work? Where do people fit into this? How can we see progress in this area? And it's a good desire to have. While not falling into this kind of utopian nightmare that is there. Each of these hopes for people, they see them as uncertain. And so when they appeal for them, they appeal for them with a level of panic and fear. They try to motivate us to get on board because it's just so urgent. Maybe you've felt that. Maybe you've felt that. Now, what we're going to look at this morning is the content of Christian hope. And can I say, Christian hope is far bigger than maybe you actually think it is. And Christian hope, it rests on a foundation that is far more secure than any of these secular hopes that are out there. We looked at it last week, and you can read about it in the first part of Uh, This chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, or you can dig up last week's sermon if you want to, it'll be online. Uh, The Christian hope rests on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of Christ happened, our hope is real. And so we're going to unpack that. Got three points. No resurrection, no hope. Uh, yes, resurrection. Yes, hope. I couldn't come up with a better one than that. And then exploring hope. So let's dive into 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. We need to actually ask ourselves, because Paul here, the Apostle Paul, one of the early uh, messengers of Jesus's uh, uh, church, um, he's speaking to a church back in ancient Greece 2,000 years ago, in Corinth and the issues that they are facing may not be quite the same issues that we are facing 
So what was the issue for them? What was the nature of their hope? Well, they had smuggled in, it appears, a few ideas from Greek culture. Now, I don't know if you've uh, studied Greek philosophy, uh, but the Greeks were really big on the spiritual is good, but the material is bad. Spirit good, spiritual good, physical bad. Okay. And so the Greek idea of salvation was that the spirit, the soul, would be released from this body of flesh and it would ascend. So the Pythagorean school, yes, the mathematical guy, he started a religion too. Uh, Some of their writings, the soul being released from the body at death with the good souls flying up to the upper realms. This idea of our spirits being released from their physical bounds, that was seen as salvation and it seems that the corinthian church while they'd heard the gospel and they'd heard about jesus's resurrection they'd kind of jettisoned the idea that they themselves would have a bodily resurrection like he did now i want to just um, briefly transgress not transgress digress <laughs> i could transgress couldn't i That might get me in trouble. Anyway, uh, can I just say, it's easy to look at the Corinthians or some other people and sort of see how they do this. But can I say, we do this. We take things from our culture and we smuggle them into Christianity. And so we just need to, as we critique the Corinthians, we need to make sure that we are critiquing ourselves, that we actually have a humility that says... Uh, we need to be constantly going back to God's word, to be testing ourselves, to be testing our beliefs against what he has told us in scripture. We need to be learning together. We need to be learning from people of different ages, different genders, different races to hear different perspectives. Ah, is that how you see it? I kind of look at it like this. And then you go back to scripture together and test it. Scripture is the judge. The Bible is the authority. But we never assume that we've got things right because we will we will do this. We will smuggle in ideas from our culture. And so the Corinthians, Paul writes to them, he says in verse 12, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and obviously it had been, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Now here, Paul is sort of saying, you guys, you've accepted the gospel. You've accepted that Christ died for sins, that he rose again on the third day. You've, you've accepted that as fact. So how can you say that you, that we, will not bodily rise from the dead? The Bible does not share the Greek idea of salvation as being spiritual and released from the physical the bible is 100 percent physical the apostles creed that we read earlier do you remember the bit down the bottom we believe in the resurrection of the body we don't believe in the resurrection of the soul we actually believe in the resurrection of the body a physical bodily resurrection 
It's what the Old Testament teaches. So the book of Job. Job says this, he says, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Or Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah promises this. He said, your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. It's a physical, bodily resurrection. And it's what the Lord Jesus himself showed us. So you remember he appears to his disciples. We looked at it just a few weeks ago. And they're freaked out thinking that they're seeing, what? A ghost. And he says this, he says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. What is the Christian hope? The Christian hope is for the restoration of all things. For a new heaven, a new earth, all things made new, including us. It's not for a rescue of our souls from this earthly place so that we can float around the clouds with hedgehogs with wings, if that's your thing. Uh, It is for a renewed, recreated, remade, perfected, physical creation peter says this in keeping with god's promise we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells where everything has been set right and so paul here he goes through in verses 13 through to 18 i'm going to go through this quickly he goes through the logic of their position he says if there's no general bodily resurrection from the dead if people don't come back flesh and bones then verse 13 jesus hasn't been raised verse 14 our preaching and your faith is useless verse 15 the apostles themselves are telling lies about god Verse 17, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 18, there is no hope after this life. And his conclusion in verse 19 is that we are more pitiable, more pathetic than all people. Because we're living in a false reality. We're living a lie. Paul says, if there is no resurrection... There is no hope. You might remember last week in the kids' talk, if you were here, Matt built a, um, uh, an engineering marvel, I think is the right way to say. He told me he, uh, he got his mitre saw and he cut every angle to 15 degrees, which means he made an archway. And at the top, there was a piece that slotted in and held it all together. And when you take that one out, the whole thing falls apart i actually did have a minor thing where i thought they were going to do this and just sit together like that so i'm glad they did fall i doubt that it's just an illustration but paul here is saying if there is no resurrection for us there is no resurrection for christ and if there was no resurrection for christ christianity is just made up it is just made up the whole thing falls to the ground like matt's 
archway. But then, moving to our second point, he says this in verse 20. But indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, if you were a scholar of the original language this was written in, Paul's making this really, really, really emphatic. He's really stressing this. He's used a little combination of words that means, but no, almost shouts at you from the page. Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits. Thank you, Matt, for again stealing the main point of my sermon uh, for the kids' talk. But uh, no, that's good. Gives us a second bite at it. Because the first fruits is a really important image to understand what is happening. Because what are the first fruits? Matt's carrots pulled out of his garden. They are an indication that there is more to come. They are part of one event called the harvest. That's just the first bits. There is more to come and there will be more of the same. So Matt's not going to go and pull up the next carrots and find that they've become turnips or radishes or beetroots or whatever else. He goes along, he's got his bed of of carrots. He's going to pull up, he's had the first fruits, they're carrots. What are the second fruits? They're carrots. And the third fruits and the fourth fruits right to the end of the harvest It's all going to be, you guys are really smart, or some of you anyway, some of you. Jesus, as the first fruits, he is the pattern and the promise of our own resurrection. He is the pattern, more of the same, and the promise, the first of the harvest. He is first fruits, and we are the rest. That is the promise. What's it going to be like? Well, a bit like Jesus. This is John. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. So we don't know exactly what it's going to be like to be resurrected from the dead. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is this is the great christian hope this is the promise that we will be raised as christ was raised that we will be transformed as christ will be transformed but as jesus himself was recognizable we will still be who we are but perfected made what we were meant to be in christ A little bit later on, and we'll look at this in a few weeks' time, Paul talks about what is is sown in dishonour is raised in glory. What is sown in perishability or corruptibility is raised imperishable. There is a transformation, but there is also continuity. Paul then, in the second half of our passage, he digresses a little bit. He tells us how it's going to happen. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
Now, we've, we've looked at this a little bit last week where we talked about how Jesus, he died for our sins. He died as our representative. He stood in our place. Now, the Bible sees us as part of a group. We are humanity, yes? And in the original situation, we had a captain. We had our representative, which was Adam, the first man. He was our representative. Death came through a man. Adam's sin, Adam's choice to not listen to God, to disobey, had implications for the whole group. Death comes through a man. But then the Bible also tells us that there is a second Adam. There is a second representative figure, and that is Jesus himself. And like Adam, whose disobedience brought death, Christ's obedience brings life. He is the one who represents us on the cross. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. As we are brought into Christ by faith, into his people. As he rises, we also rise. We find in our, in our culture, we're not, we're not good with representative figures. We're kind of like, why should I be judged for Adam's sin? Or maybe even, why should I be saved because Christ did the right thing? But let me, th- let me unpack a few illustrations because we do do this. Imagine um, Australia has a great enemy. Uh, we know this, don't we? We've, we've, you know, as a nation, there is one nation that we have always been uh, constantly at war with, uh, and that's New Zealand, isn't it? <laughs> so Scott Morrison finally brings it out in the open, and he declares war on New Zealand. That means if you're an Australian citizen, you're at war with New Zealand, aren't you? You might actually like New Zealanders. Some of them, maybe, if they could speak properly. Anyway. But the fact is, is that your representative... Apologies to all New Zealanders here. Okay. You know I'm joking. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we need an Australian drummer. Anyone? (laughs) A drummer. Anyway. Uh, But our representative has spoken... And it affects us all. We do it in families. Mum and dad make decisions for their families. They might do it with a level of consultation, perhaps. Depends how old the kids are. But mum and dad make decisions for the family. The captain walks out onto the field and flips the coin and says, we'll bat. The bowlers don't run out there and start warming up. The bowlers go, we've got a couple of days to sit back and just relax and not do anything unless the batsmen all fall in a heap, in which case the bowlers can go and save the day again. And we recognise it as well. When we have a sporting achievement, we've got the Olympics perhaps coming up in Tokyo. Okay, what do we say? How many gold have we won? Like, I'm sorry, I look around at you. You're an impressive bunch, but no, you're not going to win any gold at the Olympics. But we ask ourselves, how many gold 
have we won? We do this representative thing. And the Bible says two key figures, Adam and Christ. Adam's disobedience brings death. Christ's obedience brings life to all those who have faith in him. So why the delay? Paul tells us each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, because the Bible teaches as Christ ascended to the Father, he will return those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me just explain how the Bible views history. Actually, we're going we're to be, for the kinesthetic learners amongst you, you're going to get physical now. I want everyone to put their left arm out like this. Okay? Okay, your elbow is creation. Okay? So this is the point of creation where history begins and we go along. Okay, where your watch w- would be if you have a watch or if you don't, you know, that, wrist, that little bump on your wrist. Imagine that's the point in history where Christ is born, lives, dies and rises. Okay? And then he goes up. So imagine a little arrow up. And so what happens, bring your other hand in and overlay it so your wrists, your fingertips are over your wrist. Okay, what happens is the old timeline continues, but a new timeline starts. We live in a period called, theologians call anyway, the overlap of the ages. The old is still here, but the new has come. Now, when does this end? This ends when Christ's return. So your fingertips is Christ's return. So Christ ascends, Christ returns. That bit is the bit where we live now. You can put your arms down, perhaps you're getting a bit tired. But we live in that overlap of the ages. We live in that bit between Christ's death and resurrection, the victory on the cross, and his return to bring everything finally into submission to God. What is Jesus doing at the moment? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he is reigning and he is prosecuting his victory. He is bringing things under the lordship of Christ and ultimately under God. Verse 24, he tells us that he is defeating dominion, authority and power. He did that at the cross, but he is working that through now. Verse 26 tells us that the last enemy that stands against God's purposes is death. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. And so at that point, when Christ comes back and we rise, the perishable put on imperishability. The corruptible put on incorruptibility. The mortal put on immortality. That is the last nail in the coffin of death. Because if you are immortal, death has no reign. And if in the new creation, people do not die, death is truly defeated. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus as God's king 
will hand everything over to his father. Work done. So let's explore. There's probably lots more we could say about that, but I want to explore some of the implications. Our hope as Christians, our hope is that when Christ returns, the full fruit of his victory on the cross will be brought to bear. All things will be made new. Not just that we will be liberated and go somewhere else, heaven. No, there will be a new heavens and a new earth guaranteed and foreshadowed by Christ's own resurrection. So what does that mean? I want to give you two personal and two cosmic applications. And I forgot to start, start my, time, my, my timer. So I've got no idea how long I've been preaching for at the moment. So I'm just going to go. And if you start falling off your chairs, if, that, if you want me to stop, just obviously fall asleep at this point. Okay? Okay? So just a bit of snoring, a bit of drool perhaps on the, on the side. You know, do that on the shoulder of the next door neighbor. Okay? See how we go. Let me, let me just unpack some of the personal implications. Let me say, um, it's a bit trendy these days to talk about your bucket list, isn't it? Can I say, Christians have no need of a bucket list. It almost seems that it's the, the Australian ideal that you get to retirement and then you get to go and party and spend all the time and do all the stuff that you possibly can until bad health, let's be honest, chains you close to the doctors and the appointments and all the other things that are there when my parents retired that's what their financial advisor said uh, next 10 years you can do anything you want after that you're going to be staying at home because because um, you need to be close to the hospitals don't you anyway but can i say the whole premise of a bucket list is built on fear of missing out i've only got a couple more years i've got to get all these things packed into that I say, Christian, you haven't got just a couple more years. You haven't. You've actually got eternity. And it's not like if you don't visit Paris now, you're never going to visit Paris. No, the Paris you'll visit in the new creation will be so much better than the Paris that you'll find now. I don't think Jesus is going to throw the, the world in a bin and create something totally new. I think like with him and his bodily resurrection he was still recognizably jesus yet transformed i think the creation will still be recognizably the creation yet transformed will you be able to come to brighton and have a swim at the beach yes brothers and sisters i believe you will so if you want to spend your life traveling you can do it in a fallen corrupt world or you can do it in a perfected new creation. Which is better? One's going to cost you all that money and you're going to lug all your gear. One, I don't know, maybe you'll say to the angels, carry, carry the bags. <laughs> I don't know, we're told that they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who believe. Brothers and sisters, you don't need a bucket list. You don't need to think, I've only got 10 years, 15 years, 20 years to pack it all in because you don't and so that actually allows us now to sort of say maybe our bucket list is how can i serve christ in these 20 years these 10 years in the here and the now 
Paul draws this, he doesn't call it a bucket list, but the last verse of this chapter. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What we do for Christ now bears fruit in eternity. And so maybe our bucket list will be, hey, wow, I'm retired. I don't have to earn money anymore because I get money. Get money for sitting at home doing nothing. Okay, it's called superannuation. Okay, I'm free to do whatever I can in the service of God and his people in this world. Maybe that's the Christian bucket list. I could keep going. We've all been here, haven't we? Death. Perhaps it's our own personal fear of it. Perhaps it's our grief and pain as we've said farewell to those that we love. It is a tear in the soul, isn't it? I am um, occupationally, I get to take my fair share of funerals. Not so many recently, thank you. Okay, but I'm sure that will come. And there is nothing more stark. One of the images that, that plays with me, I keep remembering it. It's 15 years ago, standing at the end of a grave and watching the coffin go down. While Sinatra was playing in the background, I did it my way. And I kept on thinking, and look where that's got you. You're dead. Death is that tear. And we feel that. And it's become trendy in today's world to talk about death as a friend. Can I say, the Bible never teaches that death is a friend. Death is an enemy. What does Paul say? The last enemy to be defeated is death but it is a defeated enemy it's an enemy that christ's resurrection guarantees that this is not the end an old english poet he uses an image of the christian coming up to death and death's there uh, and he's got his sickle you know in the old sort of thing Uh, And he says, uh, I won't try and do it in the original language, but in a sense, he said, you used to be an executioner. And then Christ splashed a little of his blood in your face and you've become a gardener. You plant us and we spring again to new life. So much better. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us not that we should not grieve, but that we should not grieve like those who have no hope. There is pain in saying goodbye just even for a while. Some of us know this. You've left friends and family overseas, perhaps. I've left family interstate. And then COVID shut the borders. And we had this extended tear where I was used to every couple of months touching base with my family. And it went year. It went 15 months. And you feel that, don't you? But you know what? The lockdown's lifted. I got on a plane. I saw them again. You know what? Christ will return, the dead will rise, and you will see them again. So you don't need to fear. And as you grieve, yes, you will grieve. But you grieve as one who has hope. Let me just expand a couple of the introductory points that I made I reckon Christians have a great 
foundation for justice. So much better than the world. The world, I think, so often just swaps oppressor with oppressed. We just turn the tables and we think that that's justice. But what happened at the cross? Colossians 2 says this, that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the human institutions that stand against God so often that are the oppressors. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Christ broke power against God. He did that by becoming the innocent victim, by becoming the oppressed. He identified with us, but then he overthrew the powers that stood against us. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ will defeat everything. So the injustices that are out there of the, in the world, the ones that maybe we experience every day, yes, we should strive to set things right. But we should rest in the fact that in Christ, that victory has been won. The other word of caution I think I need to note is as we act to set things right, we need to be aware of our own hearts. It's so easy to speak of justice and seek revenge, to set things right in a way that advantages us and disadvantages others. It's so easy to believe in the righteousness of our cause and then justify the worst behaviour. As Christians, we can be optimistically realistic. We know that God will bring a resolution to all injustice. But in the here and the now, we can work to set things right in little ways and big with an awareness of that big picture. The environment. Well, Christianity teaches, if, if you go to the Bible, what the bodily resurrection teaches us is that the material creation is good. And the environment is part of that. It's not just us as people, that God said in creation, it is good, it is very good. The resurrection teaches us that the material creation persists, that it has value, and that we are also its stewards. So therefore we are accountable. But the Bible also teaches us that it is given to us to use, not to abuse. And our use should be recognizing our stewardship to God but our love that we should have for our neighbors so should we be environmentalists yes I actually think Christians should have a very powerful optimistically realistic environmental concern we should why because it's God's creation it's good it's beautiful it reflects its creation but we don't need to despair so much of the environmental movement at the moment is characterized by fear and despair that we're all going to suffocate that we're all going to boil that we're all going to start take your pick listen to the next 16 year old activist and hear the panic talk to the mental health professionals who talk about the fear and the anxiety that is in a generation that has been raised on this message 
parents and God, uh, grandparents. You can speak to your children. You can reassure them that God has got this. That as Christ returns, all things will be made new. Does that mean we abuse creation? No. But does that mean that we despair, thinking this is all we have? No. No, we don't. Now, there's lots more I could unpack, but I'm going to stop. And I just want to leave you with this verse. In keeping with God's promises, brothers and sisters, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells.